Welcome to the Astrophysics Podcast. When I was a little kid, maybe in 7th or 8th grade, we had a school assembly where a representative from NASA came in to talk with us about astronomy. I will never forget how he started his presentation. Just to set the scene, this was a gymnasium full of grade school students, kindergarten through 8th grade, all sitting on the gym floor with legs crisscrossed underneath us, looking up at this guy. He started out by saying... Now, I know you've all heard that the Hubble telescope had a mirror that was out of alignment. I want to assure all of you that we sent a mission up there and fixed the mirror, so now we're getting great images out of it. My 8th grade self was just thinking, what on earth is this guy talking about? But it was true. Many of you listeners might not know this, possibly because you weren't even born yet, but the Hubble telescope was, when it was first launched, uh, not everything had gone perfectly according to plan, and one of the mirrors had an aberration that they needed to send a manned mission up to repair. To me, this NASA representative trying to reassure a bunch of confused grade schoolers that they had successfully repaired the Hubble telescope really drove home how worried NASA must have been that the Hubble was becoming some kind of PR nightmare. Whenever you spend a lot of taxpayer money on a big project like Hubble, there is, of course, always going to be public pushback saying, why are we throwing our money out into space? And when the telescope doesn't even work the first time and you have to send, spend more money to send astronauts up there to repair it, well, you can imagine why NASA was so worried about their public image. Fortunately, any negative press that NASA might have gotten at the time has basically faded into obscurity. I vaguely remember one of Gary Larson's The Far Side comic strips making a joke about it, but that by itself tells you just how obscure this story was. No, once the public could finally see images taken by Hubble, any doubts that we might have had were completely washed away. By sending a telescope into space, we finally had this totally new way of looking out into the cosmos. It's hard to overstate just how much the Hubble telescope has improved our ability to understand the universe we live in. To give you some sense, it's now 30-year-old technology and other, newer space telescopes are now out there, and yet still, astronomers around the world furiously compete for the opportunity to use Hubble for even brief windows of time. My dad once said to me, if they were ever to make a list of the seven wonders of the modern world, the Hubble telescope would be on the top of that list. The idea that as a society, you expend considerable resources and effort to send a telescope into space just to be able to see what's out there. It said a lot about who we were as humans. We were curious about the universe around us and were willing to go to great lengths just to learn what's out there. But now, this generation has a new telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST as astronomers usually call it, mainly in order to reduce the word count on the grant proposals. To give you a sense of how big an upgrade James Webb is over Hubble, imagine any technology back in 1990 when Hubble was launched. Imagine computers in 1990. Imagine cameras in 1990. Think about how much these have improved just on consumer devices. Now imagine applying that big an upgrade to the Hubble telescope. The James Webb telescope is like getting new eyeballs implanted into your head that can see farther and deeper than you've ever been able to see. And already we're learning totally new concepts about the formation of the first galaxies in the universe by looking at the most distant galaxies we can see. My guest today is at the forefront of these discoveries. Her name is Dr. Erica Nelson, and she is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Colorado Boulder. Today, she is going to tell us more about the James Webb Space Telescope and what we can learn from it, including details about how the very first galaxies originally formed. I'm Paul Duffel, and this is the Astrophysics Podcast. 
question. What are your feelings on cursing? <laughs> well, <laughs> go for it if you want to. Uh, I'll try to. I'll try to. Res I'll try to refrain. Um, that's. <laughs> You know, That's, it really gets people's attention when you throw an F-bomb, you know? It's it like, does. It does. It, I know. <laughs> I, could, I could amp up my ratings. Um, exactly. Okay. All right. Good. So, so far, this has been going well. Um, <laughs> let's, get, let's, let's, let's do the thing. Let's get started. Yeah. So, I guess I should do some kind of intro. So, welcome to the Astrophysics Podcast. I'm Paul Duffel, and my guest today is Dr. Erica Nelson, professor of astrophysics at uh, University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Nelson, thank you for being on the program. Delighted to be here, Paul. <laughs> Don't have to laugh so much when you say that. <laughs> so I guess hopefully... It's off to a good start. <laughs> it's, uh, hopefully it's clear to our listeners, uh, my parents basically, but our listeners that, uh, um, uh, that Eric and I have known each other for a little while. Uh, Correct. <laughs> we have. I was. Uh, I first met you while I went at, we were both at the CFA Center for Astrophysics, mm -hmm. Harvard Smithsonian. That's right. And uh, now, now you're now you're a professor at Boulder, and I'm a professor here at Purdue. Um, so I'd like to start things off by talking about you personally and how you get to be a, how you got to be a scientist uh, before we get to mm -hmm. the actual science. So let's start by telling me a little bit about where you grew up. Um. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is a delightful place to grow up. Uh, I went to this really cool elementary school where they were basically, like, their whole philosophy of teaching is, all right, six-year-old, do whatever you want, <laughs> which was cool, because then you get to structure your own day as a six-year-old. And they're like... <laughs> was that your whole school, school experience? Because that doesn't surprise me. If yeah, <laughs> correct. <laughs> That's, that's, and here we are. Me, this, that by itself tells me volumes right there. Yes, mission. <laughs> I don't believe in rules. <laughs> yeah, they, they, so they told us, like, hey, kids, why don't you do a report on a planet? And I was like, that's cool. Black holes are kind of like planets. I'm going to do a report on a black hole. And my teacher was like, really? that's what you're going to do? And I said, yes, I am. And then I did. And then I was like, well, I'm going to be an astrophysicist. Oh, my God. That's that's it? That's right it. There, right then and there? Yeah, I oh was my God. seven. Well, that's like three of my questions that I was going to ask. <laughs> Just completely shot down. Shot down. So. Killed him. Killed him. So. <laughs> And what am I going to ask now? Do you have a memory of the first time you wanted to do science? Oh, hang on. That was already answered. Well, um, I have a follow-up. Okay. <laughs> um, so I was like, black holes, I was like, sold. And then I did a report on the Hubble Space Telescope. And I was like, when I learned about the fact that when you look really far away, you're looking back in time. Yes. I was like, this is the most mind-blowing thing I have ever thought about in my existence. I have to do this with my life. Wow. And so that's what I did for my PhD thesis. It's just skipping a person's kid. Just skipping it. Skipping, skipping the problem you, years. You getting, you're like, all right, let, let me start my PhD thesis now. Yeah. yeah, and then there was like the years of like high school where I was like, you know what I should do? I should throw parties when my parents are out of town. <laughs> and then I got in a lot of trouble. And then okay. eventually I emerged on the other side. You okay, know? well, that's... <laughs> Well, that's nice. Um, 
Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, that seems so um, too perfect, right? You <laughs> just like as you're a little kid, <laughs> astrophysics, and then no like yeah. deviation from that. You were just like, this is what I want to do, and then you got in trouble a bit as a teenager, and that. <laughs> and then, but then you stopped being in trouble. Well, you got in trouble in various ways, I'm sure, but. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I like I have this high school physics teacher who was a real piece of work, um, and so I like I'd wanted to take a physics class like forever, and I was so excited to be in this class, and I'd always ask questions, and I was like, I was like just so excited about everything, and he had this sign in the front of the classroom that whenever you asked a question, he would just point to the sign, and it said, "Now is not the time." <laughs> I am dead serious. <laughs> he was like, his goal was to like kill curiosity of children. He was awful. Um, but then I was like, and so he was like, he was like, just God. And so my mom went to parent teacher conferences and he like, and she was like, you know, what is my daughter doing something wrong? Like, she's just really excited about physics. And he's mm -hmm. like, she's trying to humiliate me in front of the rest of the class. Oh my God. And my mom was, told me this. I was like, what? Like, dude has a PhD, an engineering PhD, and he's right. like, I'm embarrassing him in front of the class that he's taught for like 30 years, whatever. Um, <laughs> anyways, I felt kind of bad, but uh, then I was asking him a question after class, because I was like, well, maybe if I just don't ask him during class, he will like hate me less or something. Right. And so I asked him a question after class, and he's like, I don't understand like why you are so like adamant about this. And I was like, well, I want to be an astrophysicist. Like, that's what I want to do with my life. And he's like, you can't do that. And I was like, why not? He's like, who's going to cook? Seriously? Yes. Correct. In high school. And so that was whatever, 2000 something. Yeah. Okay. So then you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll become a chef. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay, I better get my chef skills on. Like, and then I was like, well, since the only thing I want to eat is cookies, I'll learn how to bake cookies and nothing else. <laughs> They're the only delicious food in the whole universe. Yeah, it was well, like, I should have baked cookies for you. It's true. Next time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. So that's uh, that. That must have been pretty demoralizing. Or, but, but did you? How did you take that? Did you take it like? Did, did it? Did it like? Was it like a punch to the gut, or was it more like screw you? <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely like a. I definitely had like a because I was told that in different ways by different people. Like I was mm -hmm. told by my chemistry teacher, like you don't want to be a scientist like you know they're you know they're brilliant but they just don't function like the rest of us like in society and like my like track coach weirdly was like no you're not you're not smart enough to do that like you you you'll be a politician like you're good at talking and i was like thank you thank you for that and this is when all your listeners judge me cuz i'm not good at talking but yeah it was a weird like it was weird and so it just didn't feel like i had the right like identity to like do it. Like it was like I would always be just like on the outside. I would never be one of like the scientists, you know. So it was weird. like I just never felt like I fit in. And like all so those funny to me science. because I, to me your personality. Well, to me your per even though you do have a <laughs> at times combative personality, but it's you. I think it fits in very well. There's a lot of people in that are in science that are like that. Right, that you that you yeah. were, that you get excited and you want to know the thing and you keep asking the questions like that's 
Exactly. <laughs> you, <laughs> that's the kind of curious mind that does fit in here, I would think. Yeah, it's just, I think like in high, I don't know, and I think probably a lot of students in high school feel this way. Like they're just like, there's like the, there's like all these kids in high school and it's like they do like they don't like they go to they do math on you know Friday nights and like they like are in math club and they do mm -hmm. a lot of like Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. and like there's you know they have their whole thing and mm -hmm. that's cool and I that's those were not my things like right. I was more like I want to spend all my time doing sports uh -huh. I don't want to read books like I can barely even <laughs> read <laughs> so like it was like yeah it just didn't feel like I was kind of like like it didn't feel like we had a lot in common if you know what I mean and mm -hmm. so it just felt like kind of like is this really my is this where I'm supposed to be like I don't you know it so it was kind of a weird Thing. But you yeah. still had this idea. I mean, you you had this idea in your head this whole time that you want. This is what you want to do. You thought all this con stuff about space and black holes and how like looking into the past and understanding the universe. Still, that was that superseded all of that. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, well, I was kind of like, okay, maybe I can just get through all the science stuff and then like I'll be able to do the stuff I'm good at, like teaching or science communication or something. And then it wasn't until grad school that I was like, oh, actually. I love research. I love it. <laughs> okay. I love it so much. And I actually am kind of okay at it, which is nice. Like, you know, <laughs> so that's good. good. It's good to be kind of okay it's at it. It's good to be kind of okay. So, um, so okay, so that gets into then, so that when you started grad school, I guess you felt like a little more at home. I wish I could say yes, but no, definitely not. <laughs> Still not. Do you feel, do you at any point feel at home? <laughs> I mean, I don't, do you feel at home? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> not in a, not in any given room I'm in, but. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I think maybe just no one ever feels like fully at home or something. Yeah, I maybe, don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe, yeah. We're all a little restless. Um, yeah, we but, all feel like we're like our own special snowflakes, you know? <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm such well, a very special snowflake, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it could be. It could be. It's uh, so, <laughs> fair. I mean, we're not. We're all like just part of humanity, and like mm -hmm. that's beautiful and amazing. But it's just, I think, like, I don't know. I think sometimes, like, students, especially during their like angsty years, are like particularly troubled by the fact that the, like, the people around them aren't the same as them. You're like, oh, I don't yeah. fit in with this. And I, I don't actually, I think everyone feels like that to yeah. a certain extent. I guess it's true. At least at some point in your life, you'll yeah. always kind of feel like, like no one, like I'm no different. No one gets me, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So I guess I just kind of think of like, I think of like my students and just, you know, that, and especially high school students that just because you don't necessarily, they don't necessarily feel that this is everyone around them gets them. It doesn't mean you're in the wrong place. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's true. That's a good point. Um, so then, okay. So I guess we were getting into like when you got into grad school yes. and how you got. When did you feel like you started like thinking like a scientist? Hmm. That's a good question. Definitely, I've definitely grad school. Once you start that those kind of moments when your advisor gives you some kind of direction and i had a fantastic phd supervisor i was like 
Peter Van Dockum was amazing. Um, but when you know he suggests a direction to go, and then you think of follow-up questions yourself, and then you want to explore them, mm-hmm. I feel like that is when I really started feeling like a scientist. Yeah, yeah, that took me a number of years before I sort of started thinking that way, where I was like, oh, if you set up the problem this way, then then totally. you can figure this out, you know, and just. <laughs> totally. Rather than being like, oh, I've been given this task, and let me solve it, you know. Uh, Check all these boxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you are really kind of starting to set your own uh, your own directions. I kind of think of it. You know how the, do you know the XKCD what ifs? No, I don't. Okay, they're great. It's like, the, like for example, what if you had a mole, like the number mole oh, yes, of I know moles. This. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. of the furry animal. Mole, what would happen? A mole of moles, A right? mole of moles, yeah. <laughs> what would happen? And then you kind of get to go through all of the science of what would happen in that <laughs> circumstance where you had a ball of, of, of fur. And you and so I feel like research is kind of that. It's just answering these what-if questions. Mm-hmm. You know, you you pose a question to yourself, and then you, if it's an interesting question, then you answer it. And yeah. then you write a paper about it. <laughs> Cool. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's a great life. Excellent. So, okay, so now now you're an astrophysicist. Mm-hmm. Goals achieved. Goals achieved. Um, what, uh, what are the, some of the things you like the most about your job? I love that our entire job is that we get to be driven by our curiosity. Mm-hmm. I, the universe is just such an unbelievably weird and interesting place. And we just get to discover things about it and discover all the weirdness and then follow it and see where mm-hmm. it leads. And I just cannot think of a cooler job than that. Yeah. It's very, <laughs> I mean, when you it's put amazing. it like that. <laughs> and we get to then teach students who yeah. also are curious about the universe. And yes. they are, I mean, everyone is excited about the universe. There's no, I mean, I guess, especially like those listening to your podcast about yes, space. Yes, my but, parents. Yes, your Hi, parents. Hi, mom and dad. Hi, mom and dad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, maybe my parents will listen to They too. could. Yeah. This, this is how I gain listeners. It's like... <laughs> I mean, I'll tell my parents about it, and then they'll tell their friends. Exactly. <laughs> we'll have 10 listeners. <laughs> yes. Before you know it. Before you know it. But, I mean, you just ever, it's, it's such an amazing, the fact that we live at, in an era where we are sufficiently able to produce food and shelter for ourselves, that we can actually expend resources to understand our origins and the universe is Remarkable, truly yeah. remarkable. I am so glad I live now instead of in a time where I was dumping chamber pots <laughs> on the street. You know, it's really yeah. a better time. It's pretty good. It's pretty it's good. It's a pretty good deal. I know. I like to. I mean, I would always, especially when I was a postdoc, I would just be like, they just pay me to play around on my computer all day. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I have additional tasks. You know, teaching and uh, and advising, which I find really fun. Really uh, fun. But. Yeah. yeah, it's just amazing sometimes what students come back to you with, 
what the, yeah, they're <laughs> these junior, really junior scientists, and they yes. come back to you with these amazing findings, and you just can't believe that they could already do that. Yes. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. especially when they kind of lock in on that mode of, of becoming scientific thinkers and just being like, oh, but what if we did, you know, then they get that, you know, then that's always, you're like, oh, I've gotten them. I got, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I lured them I into the them. trap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love that. Uh, and is there anything you don't like about your job? I, I might edit this part out, depending on. So, anything you don't like about your job? Currently, it's more that I don't something I don't like about me rather than my job. Like, I wish that I was faster at doing everything so that oh. I didn't have to work so many hours. Oh. Yeah. I work a lot of hours yeah. just to, I feel like just to get all the things done that I like just. have to get done. And I feel like I'm still only getting like 20% of my job done, but it's just like, I like all the different components mm -hmm. of the job. It's just, they sum up to a lot more hours than are available to me. And so I just, it would be great if I could just do everything way faster. What do you think sinks a lot of that time away? Is it like meetings or? The, yeah, I mean, I think, and it's like all the meetings in and of themselves are like good things, right? right? right. It's like more communication is always good. Yeah. And, but I think it's definitely, I feel like this is such a banal answer. Transitioning <laughs> from one thing to another thing is like really hard, you know, to like if you're in meeting mode and then you have to transition for like half an hour to research mode and you're just like, it's like trying to get the plane to take off. Yes. But if you have a really short runway and you're like, come on, brain, you got this or you're going to go <laughs> crashing into the ocean. Like, let's do this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so long, Ugh, so yeah. Much yeah, I guess I, I get that too. It's very hard to do your own research once you're once you're in professor mode because you have so many other things. Have, yeah, it's hard I, to fill in the gaps with research. And I do feel selfish wanting to do my own research and publish my own papers instead of just helping students mm -hmm. with their papers. But it also is like what makes me want to do the job kind right. of. Right, that's like, what you were originally trained to do. That's the funny yeah. thing about becoming a professor. No, it's weird. Is all, you're, you're, you're hired based on your ability to do your own research, and then you're like, good, congratulations, you're now a manager. Yes, <laughs> you're now a uh, manager of people, budgets, and students. <laughs> yeah. this is, and you need to deal with all these things that you have no idea how to do. Yeah, yeah you just kind of feel out of your depth. Yeah. I also wish I was a better manager of people. I've been reading books, but I it's it's not I'm not good at it. Like I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> well, but we like, weren't trained on this sort no, of thing. No, we were just, not. just like, well, you'll naturally be good at it, I'm sure. You know physics, so you'll be good at it with people. Um so <laughs> And like managing them. Yes. Managing them. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, oh, interesting. <laughs> you know? I know. So I feel bad for like my early students because I just feel like I'm not a very good advisor yet and I'm like working on it, but I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry, good at this. Sorry, <laughs> you're the test student. I know. <laughs> you're <laughs> such <laughs> you're such a brilliant guinea pig, but like, you know, like it sucks to be a guinea pig. Yeah. yeah it's rough. So, okay, what would you, so this, I don't know, maybe this is kind of a repeat question, but what would you say motivates you the most in your professional life? In other words, gives you the energy to get, like, out of bed and work on these things? I, you probably, I guess you've already said, kind of. Like, yeah. You're excited about the research itself. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, lately, and this has kind of been like a thing that has driven me for some time now, but I would say lately it has been 
the James Webb Space Telescope because okay. there is, it is just so mind blowing what we can see with that telescope. And you know, it's like anytime you look at the universe with new eyes, you just see all the stuff you weren't expecting to see. And it is remarkable. So I just get really excited to about the discovery aspect these days. All right. To just look at these images and like, what is in these images? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. so cool. It's really cool. And I think I had a, um, before we met mm -hmm. at Harvard, I had a very rough first postdoc and such that I was uh, starting to apply to jobs that were not astrophysics jobs because I just felt so discouraged. I felt like really? so horrible about my existence. And so uh, it, it was really the fact of getting JWST data that is why I'm still here because I was about to bail. Wow. I was like, this is horrible. I hate That's crazy this. because I, well, okay. So I, yeah. I I never got that sense from you when I was, when we were at uh, the CFA at Harvard. But uh, so I, yeah. I'm not gonna even, I was, I was, I'm curious as to what your previous institution was, but I think that would be a little bit mean to <laughs> say what it is. People can look it up if they want to. <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, but, but so, you, um, but to me, when you, when I met you there, you seemed really motivated and excited every day to come to work. So at least yeah. maybe at the CFA it wasn't that you would kind I of... I loved the CFA. Yeah. Everyone was so like supportive and nice and I was I was so excited to be there. It's a great I loved environment. It. it was a great environment. And it's just it has definitely kind of driven my you know, I'm really I really think that environment is really important and mm -hmm. and kind of the environment that we create every day for each other yes and so it's really become something I work hard at you know I'm not always good right you know you have days <laughs> when you're cranky and you're just like yes you know and and so like obviously I'm not always like I'm not always good at this but I do try really hard to make sure that like the thing I'm contributing to my surroundings is, you know, kindness and to like help that place yeah. be as good, like That's to do funny. what I can to not be a jerk, you know? For me, my bad days are when I'm just, my brain just doesn't work and I'm spaced out. And so I give completely useless <laughs> answers <laughs> to any question someone has. It's actually, I have to do this pod, I realize I have to do this podcast in the morning because like oh, yeah. I can't. <laughs> I try to do it in the afternoon. Yeah. It, will, it will be way more, <laughs> way more of a train wreck than it already is. It's like a so. mushroom trying to interview a person. <laughs> that's yeah, right. you're like, exactly. I have the brain capacity of a fungus right now. <laughs> yeah, that's how I get. I get that. That's, mm -hmm. And I feel really bad when I get that way because I, you know, I, it's the same. It's well, it's a different thing. But I am creating an environment, right? Yeah. And, it's, and when I when I do that, get that way, I create an environment of like nothing you say matters. <laughs> You know, because I, because it's just gonna go through, go bounce off the fungus and yeah, and into the into the dirt. And yeah, into the you're dirt. Like, this is not helpful. So I'm sad because you gave me a perfect transition when you talk, started talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh yeah, you just you cut like, the rest of it. Just, yeah. <laughs> Don't tell me how to edit my own show. I'm sorry, I, Paul. I no, all that's gold. But but by, I should say. 
because I was thinking of it, like you, what you said about environment is perfect because the CFA, it's kind of the opposite of what you were saying before about that sign that said now is not the time, right? Yes. When you, <laughs> right, pointing that sign and being like, we don't ask questions right now, you know, like mm -hmm. CFA was the, you know, Center for Ast Harvard Center for Astrophysics, for those who don't immediately know what I'm saying when I say the phrase CFA really quickly. Um, but yeah, um, it's it's a perfect environment for exactly what you're talking about of getting excited and asking questions, jumping in and asking the question, mm -hmm. whether not worrying about whether it's the right moment. Totally, because you, know? you can't pause and go like, wait, is this the right? <laughs> Just wait a moment for then the question. We'll, then you'll lose it. It'll, mm -hmm. you'll, all totally. its momentum will be gone. All, yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that, I agree. That's to, I totally agree that the environment is so crucial. Um, anyway, I just wanted to link it back to that because I thought that yes. was. Um, so let me ask you, let me start by asking you this. When you meet a new grad student or a fellow scientist and they ask you what you work on, what do you tell them? I tell them that I use our just wonderful space telescope, JWST, <laughs> to uh, look back to close to the beginning of time to understand how the first galaxies form. Okay. And now you said this right off the top about this exciting concept of looking back in time, but why don't we dig into it a little bit in detail mm -hmm. and explain what that means. Yes. So, uh, light travels really fast, but uh, it actually does have a finite speed. Mm -hmm. And so if it has to travel a really long ways, uh, like from billions of light years away, uh, it takes billions of years to arrive to us. And so you can, if you can look really far away with a really powerful telescope, then that means you can look to very early times when that light was emitted. So you're essentially looking back into the past, which is just a remarkable concept. So like, for example, when we look at the sun, we're looking, we're not seeing as it as it is exactly now, we're seeing what it looked like eight minutes ago because light exactly. takes eight minutes to come to us. So if the sun were to, for some reason, spontaneously turn into a black hole, we would not know for eight minutes. <laughs> Consider that. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I guess we can carry on with the podcast for at least eight minutes. Correct. Uh, <laughs> so... So then, okay, so then if we look, uh, so then extending that to very, very distant galaxies, mm -hmm. you say billions of light years away, we're seeing them as they were billions of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do with that information? So if we can look far enough back, um, we can look back to the time when galaxies like our Milky Way were forming for the first time. You know, it was... The universe started with the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, and then all of the structure in the universe had to form from that to where we are now. And so if, we're, if we want to understand how that structure formed, um, you know, there's a number of different ways we can do it, but I think definitely the coolest way is to look back and actually see the structure just in the process Just look at it directly yeah. and just see. That, so you were almost, you were, if you're getting looking at more and more distant galaxies, each of them is a snapshot at a different time. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually see the evolution, or you're not seeing any one galaxy as it evolves, so it's not exactly like what turning on a movie, but mm -hmm. it's 
uh, you can see the evolution of what galaxies looked like totally. at, each, uh, at each point in the past. Totally. It's like piecing together how humans grow from like, you know, a picture of a different person at every, you know, right. at, at, at each month of their life, you know, or right. so it's cool. Yeah. You, I mean, and so, you know, it's different people that you're looking at, but you can kind of see that gradually humans get bigger and hairier <laughs> as <Right>. they age. <laughs> That's you fair, uh, um, and so, <laughs> and so, but so you learn general things about how how galaxies evolve mm -hmm. and how they how they uh, grow. And so, how do the, I guess? Uh, well, maybe we'll yeah. How do they evolve? What they guess they get bigger, they grow. Yeah, they they kind of you know galaxy formation is interesting because it is kind of at the intersection of a lot of of physical processes of very different scales. You know, there's relevant scales down to the size of a black hole, and okay. then there's relevant scales up to the size of the entire universe. Um, and so it's really hard, all, the way all of, the interplay between all of those different scales and the physical processes at all those different scales makes it a very complicated thing. Because right, right? all of those different things are important that are going on. So like, what are these things? like? Uh... So. One of the so you know on the on the biggest scales, galaxies kind of form at the so we live in a cosmic web, you know, this big spider web <laughs> of the universe. Um, and so galaxies live at kind of the intersection of these different filaments, and gas kind of flows down these filaments into the galaxy that's at the center. And then that gas uh, will condense until it gets um, dense enough and hot enough uh, for nuclear fusion to ignite, and that is how the stars in the galaxy are formed, right? Okay. And then, um, and then as those stars age, uh, some of them become supernovae and blast gas back out of the galaxy, um, or that gas falls into supermassive black holes and that blasts gas back out of the galaxy. So you have these kind of galactic fountains okay. of so there's gas. A, so the, the processes I've counted so far, you have on the largest scales, you have gas flowing in to mm -hmm. the galaxies. You have the stars first forming and that affecting the galaxies, uh, the far, then the star is exploding mm -hmm. and that affecting the structure of the galaxies it blows, blows the gas out of the galaxies. Mm -hmm. And then also gas falling onto black holes in the center of the galaxy mm -hmm. and that uh, and then and then that creating all other outflows that also affect the structure. Mm -hmm. Is there anything I missed? <laughs> Yeah, you have um, <laughs> you have the uh, angular momentum of the the so all galaxies live in um, big kind of spheres of dark matter, which we call dark matter halos, and so those um, those halos have angular momentum, and that drives uh, the the structural evolution of the galaxies. So so also so okay, so there's another other thing. First of all, dark matter. We first time bringing up dark matter, yes, and true. without much explanation, which mm -hmm. is. <laughs> Kind of how we don't have much explanation yeah. for it, other than it's this all this is most of the uh, most of the uh, I guess mass in the universe that we can't really see, mm -hmm. but and it's and that's what actually constitutes most of the well we call it the halo, uh, mm -hmm. but that's actually constituting most of the mass in the region, mm -hmm. and so what and it, we don't see that directly, we're only indirectly looking at it from the mm -hmm. galaxy, right? Yeah, and it's you know the it's weird because there's this thing that we don't. See See, our only evidence for it is its 
gravitational effect on the matter that we can see, on luminous matter. And so we weirdly kind of have to take it on faith that this <laughs> exists, you know, and it has, a lo- there's a lot of predictions of this model that mm-hmm. includes dark matter that are successful, but mm-hmm. we haven't detected we it. We haven't seen it ever directly. It's always yeah. indirect. We see how it, af- it affected. There's many examples where that are very close to direct, yeah. where you can see its influence very precisely, but you can't, but uh, we can't detect we, it. We've never, we've, nev- we've never found a way of just l- looking at it directly, either, you know, in a particle accelerator making it or something like that. Yeah, or figuring out or, any way to observe it in right. the universe. It's it's kind of it's kind of wild, but you know we think even though we haven't detected this, we think it kind of forms the scaffolding of our universe, of right. all the structure in so our universe. So this is what you were describing before. You said the cosmic web, and I kind of let you just <laughs> go. That, go with that. <laughs> uh, but but right, you like you, what you said before is that um, when we look at the universe, we see these galaxies. Uh, but I guess they're at the they're what most of the mass of the universe is in this dark matter, and that forms this thing, this thing you called the cosmic web, mm-hmm. which we call it that because of the way it, <laughs> the it way looks. it's structured. It yeah. looks very web-like. These filaments going mm-hmm. from one halo to the other. Yeah. But we never see that directly, do we? Or are there you in there is gas, very hot gas in mm-hmm. there also. So there are people that are working on trying to actually image the cosmic web in okay. hot gas. So the yeah, it, it, in principle, you could see the cosmic web if you could look at it if in ionized look gas. At, if you look, if you can see the gas that's flowing, not the galaxies themselves, which are bright, but the the gas that's flowing mm-hmm. into them, it might be harder to detect directly. Yeah, because it's very very diffuse and very hot. So what, okay, so what does your like, day-to-day research look like? So currently, um, I am basically just using data from the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, so, you know, we, we're getting new data essentially every day from this thing, and it is just a box full of surprises. It's glorious. It is, there's so much weird stuff in there. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of always looking for surprises and then trying to understand what they are and what their impact uh, might be on our okay. understanding. That's of kind universe. of neat because that is a, also a link to your, you as a little kid being excited about the Hubble telescope. And yeah. now this is our generation's version of that. It which is. is uh, so that's pretty cool. That's a <laughs> it's amazing. It's so amazing. I mean, the stuff that we've found with that thing is just crazy. We thought it was going to be a telescope of galaxies, mm-hmm. and it is that. It is also a telescope of baby quasars, which is very cool and very weird. Baby quasars? Baby quasars. <laughs> baby <laughs> quasars. Uh-huh. All right. So explain. we'll have to explain what a quasar is. Yeah, so um, basically at the center of every single 
galaxy, at least massive galaxies, we think that there is this supermassive black hole that is lurking there. So something between, so a black hole with a mass of kind of a million to a billion times the mass of the sun. So big black holes. Very, very massive. Very massive. Um, one of the things that has been challenging for us to understand is how those big black holes got there. Right. Because it's really hard to make a black hole that big. Yeah, um, I would has, think. It has to eat a lot of stuff. It has to eat a lot. It has to eat a million to a billion times the mass of the sun. Yeah, in like a finite amount of time. And there's kind of a you know physical limit, we think, on how fast they can eat because, mm -hmm. you know, when they're weirdly, uh, supermassive black holes, despite the fact that they're called black holes, are some of the most luminous objects in the universe. And so right. that radiation actually sets a limit on how fast they can eat. So it it makes it very, it has been a longstanding theoretical challenge to figure out how we make these black holes big enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been trying to figure this out for a while. And all of a sudden, now in the early universe, we're seeing all of the baby versions of these black holes. So we're actually able to, just like galaxies, see them in the process of growing, which has been remarkable and really helps us put constraints on our models, which wow. is cool. So the quasar, meaning that when the black hole is, being, is eating gas, it shines brightly and we see it as what we call a quasar. And so then the, um, so when you call it, so baby quasar is meaning when you say baby quasar, what you mean it's a black hole that is shining brightly, but it's less massive. And so how massive are we talking? So it, you know, it, it doesn't sound that baby, <laughs> you know, if you're kind of not used to thinking about supermassive black holes, but we're talking about like, you know, a hundred thousand times the mass of the sun. Okay, but yeah. that's much smaller than any uh, black hole that we've seen in that way, right? At that, at those times. At those yeah. times, I see. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Totally. And it's really this is a this is a kind of region of ma massive black holes that we have a hard time studying because they're right. hard to detect. Yeah. Right. So we understand. I mean, so for example, when we talk about black holes, there are the black holes that are seen by mm -hmm. gravitational waves, which are you know some. One to thirty solar masses, or something like that, mm -hmm. and and then uh, and then there's sort of a gap where we don't know what goes on, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then, <laughs> and this is in that gap, basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and it's it's amazing because we've found. I mean, we have found so many of these black holes in the, in this gap, and the one of the weird things about them is you, there's kind of a relationship between the mass of a black hole and the mass of a galaxy um, in, you know, now in the universe that is nearby to us. And all of these fall dramatically off the relation. They okay. are really massive. So you're saying like if we look at galaxies nearby or by, by nearby, meaning in, you know, when you don't have to look way back in cosmic time, you're just looking at stuff now. Uh, you see a more massive galaxy, it'll have a more massive black hole in the center. And, mm -hmm. and that, that, that's been established as a pretty remarkable fact of, totally. <laughs> of, of uh, how galaxies seem to must evolve with their black holes in some mm -hmm. way. But then you're saying that when you look back at these uh, baby quasars, mm -hmm. uh, you see that they're not fitting with that. Uh, they're not fitting into that relationship that we expected. That they're not. Are, are they more massive or less massive than you'd expect? 
The ones we've seen so far, and this could be a bias in our observations, but the ones we've seen so far are very overmassive. I see. So the, the galaxies are extremely young, mm -hmm. and you would expect they would have a very small, much smaller black hole at their center. Mm -hmm. But the but they seem to be not. They seem to be already very massive. Yeah, exactly. And so they're, you know, and so one possibility, if this ends up actually being correct, um, which you know more data needs to be taken. Right. Uh, if it ends up being correct, it could kind of suggest that instead of galaxies forming before black holes, the black holes formed before the galaxies. And they oh. kind of provided the, the seed that formed the galaxy. So, oh, wow. Which would be very, very that cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. So do we have, was that idea out there in the zeitgeist before? Or is it now just, just something we have in response to this data? I didn't follow the black hole literature before, right. so I don't know. Okay. But it, I think, I mean, it's definitely become a much more prominent possibility since right. we've actually got, since we've gotten this data. Right, yeah. right. That's very cool. It's really cool. Uh, okay, so, all right. Um, what would you say was your most impactful contribution? What are you most proud of in your professional career? So when the first JWST data came in, I was looking at it, you know, so there's this this image that President Biden released, uh, you know, it took him two hours. And so like, you know, I'd already drinking too much champagne that, you know, <laughs> it was just like waiting for this image to be released. Um, but we eventually got the image and it was spectacular. And the thing I immediately noticed was there was all of these, these bright red objects in the James Webb image that were not in the Hubble image um, of the same galaxy cluster. Bright red it's, objects. So red, red galaxies? I guess you're going to answer this question in a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they were galaxies. Okay. You, you looked ahead. Great job. Um, <laughs> I didn't know the answer to this. Yeah. Most of the questions I ask, I already know the answer to, yeah. but this one I didn't. <laughs> well, and some are these baby quasars, it turns out. But yes, um, the, so we have these images, and so I found all these objects, and my my friend and collaborator, Rachel Bazanson and I started, uh, we selected a bunch of these um, from the images and we started fitting them um, with, you know, our best models of uh, stars and gas and all the things that we think make up a galaxy to try to under to try to measure both the distances to these galaxies, i.e. their ages in the universe, mm -hmm. and um, how much they weighed. Because those are kind of the two fundamental parameters, right? Um, you know, very basic yes. parameters. Um, and so one of these things, so she ran these fits, and one of these things ended up having um, being at really, 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 really early cosmic times, and already at that time was really, really, really massive. Um, so massive at such early times that there, we immediately realized that it should not exist according to our models of cosmology. I see. And so we, you know, we kind of, we're on Slack all the time. It was early James Webb days, no one was sleeping. And so we slacked our other colleagues and um, one of our colleagues found uh, more of them 
And so we immediately wrote this thing up and submitted it to Nature like two days later. Um, and it was it was really cool because the implications of this, so we're still trying to verify these, but mm -hmm. the implications um, are, are profound if they're correct. It's because you really should not be able to make these in our standard model so of it's, cosmology. It's, you, have this, you have these galaxies that are s such an early time in the universe and they're so massive. Like we had thought, okay, they build up mass and you can sort of, Imagine charting how they grow with time, and if you extrapolate back, they'd be a certain mass. But these were much more massive, which meant so, like somehow, suddenly, you just formed all this matter all at once uh, together, and we just have no idea how you would just suddenly snap a galaxy into existence, a fully formed galaxy yeah. like that, so quickly. Exactly. Like one of the kind of key predictions of our model of cosmology, which is kind of which underlies, you know, kind of everything we think we understand about the universe, mm -hmm. is how it. Uh, builds mass, how it builds the mass of objects. Gradually, it builds little things first, and then those little things crash into each other and make slightly bigger things, and mm -hmm. then those things crash into each other and make slightly bigger things. And so you start building little things first, and then eventually you have big things. But to right. have really big things right away is just not how our model of cosmology predicts it's supposed to work. Wow. So what does that leave us? Like, what could, what could be happening <laughs> we so the first the first thing is we need to actually verify that right. these things weigh as much as we think they weigh right um, so I'm getting data in January to verify that right. um, if they are correct if even one of them is correct right we have a problem right which is cool uh, <laughs> I love problems <laughs> eat that theorists um, yeah the uh, so um, so that's the first possibility is that they're just wrong. We got their masses wrong. Right. Um, so, but if that's right, then uh, the next step, which some, which there, some theoretical models have already proposed is that you have to form the stars in these objects in a way that doesn't, has never been predicted before, because you basically have to turn every atom of gas into a star. Normally, star right. formation is incredibly inefficient, right? right. It's less than 5% of the gas is turned into stars. So this is 100% of the gas uh. is turned into stars, which is improbable, right. um, but also a less scary possibility than messing around with, you know, the other knobs that you can turn, like dark matter and dark energy. So. Right. So that's that would be sort of the most conservative. Like, okay, the most conservative assumption is that the data that that the masses are off or something like that. Our interpretation's just um, wrong. Yeah. But then, give uh, beyond that, then the then the most conservative, like the most conservative, like theoretical explanation would be that somehow you just really efficiently form stars. Yeah. That all like all the the galaxies just when it first starts out, it's very particular and <laughs> it, it's very it's they get sloppier as they get older. They don't worry about. <laughs> Uh, the details it's yes. like raising your second kid you know but like but the very first one you're being very careful you're putting all the gas into stars mm -hmm. you know and being very careful with all in using it so uh, but but it, but we still have no idea even how you would do that even even if yeah. that were true um, and then like and you alluded to like you could come up with more uh, 
fancy ways of like fancy theoretical knobs you could tune like changing if you if you changed things about like dark how dark matter or dark energy uh, behaved in the universe you could like is that because it would change our ex expectation for the age of the universe or something like that or if you so there's ways you know we've our, our what we think dark matter is uh, is in principle is, is a very um, efficient is very efficient at forming structure in the universe. It's very mm -hmm. low energy, and so it's very easy for it to collapse mm -hmm. in order and form kind of the foundation of galaxies, the, the, the structure on which these galaxies are built. But you could, in principle, make it even faster at forming structure if, for instance, uh, you have part of the dark matter that is made out of baby black holes. Oh, I see. Yeah, our colleague, uh, Julian Munoz from Harvard. Uh, oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, um, is, is one of the people who's um, suggested that, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, but he, so you can basically, if you have some um, part of that, uh, some part of that dark matter that is comprised of black holes, then it would be even stickier, and it would stick together and form the structure even faster than our current predictions. So that would be a way to solve the problem. Um, and then, yeah, there's these kind of dark energy models that also change how the structure forms in okay. the early universe. So it's basically you're trying to get ways for um, structure to form more quickly. But yeah, increasingly fancy, compli like, complicated ways uh, of of changing what we think, overthrowing what we think about physics uh, to make these galaxies exist. But um, uh, but I guess yeah. It, 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 but it, we're still in this, still at the moment in the stage where we're we're seeing if it's even true. Yes. Um, but yeah. And like I like I really love lobbing grenades at theorists, but like I really you know I I I want them to be I even even with that I still want to lob the least destructive grenades first. You know, so right. that's that's where we're at. That's fair. That's very good. Um, and so that and so so th that was that was very recent because JWST just um, mm -hmm. I feel like it's so I feel like just JWST just launched just yesterday and we're already getting so much so we're amazing. just learning so much more about the universe and new things so we're learning I mean that I mean that by itself just seeing like oh there's some red it looks like there's some what are those red spots on that image mm -hmm. and then that turning into what galaxies don't form the way we think they do totally. it's, <laughs> it's uh, wild it's yeah. very wild that's very exciting so i think you've made a good case for uh, for the james webb telescope already um um and you've already said that it's not just galaxies we've looking at we've, we're seeing all kinds of other stuff with it like you said baby quasars and there's all and, um, um but um, so I guess I'm going to ask a more broad question, um, and we'll see if you have an answer for this. In your opinion, why should we care about astrophysics? I think that we as humans, part of our nature is that we want to understand our origins and we want to understand the world around us. I mean, for you know, for thousands of years, people have been telling stories about about space mm -hmm. around us and have been telling stories about how we got here. And so I think it's just part of our nature to want to know that, to want to be able to explain how we got here. And the way we answer those questions 
now uh, is different, right? Because mm-hmm. we can actually launch telescopes into space, <laughs> which is amazing, um, instead of just saying like, oh, the Milky Way, that looks like some god spilled milk in the sky, you know, <laughs> yes. but we can actually, you know, look, study those stars, study their ages, study their chemical abundances, and reconstruct the formation history of the galaxy that we live in. It's remarkable, but I think it's, I think it's part of being human to want to understand that. Mm-hmm. To understand this place that we live, the universe. To understand our cosmic origins. Yeah. Well, that's a good, that's a good reason to care. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that. Uh, so what is next on the horizon for you? What are the next big questions to tackle? I think that my, you know, it's, it's a little bit, this is a slightly strange time um, in my field of astrophysics for the reason that it's, I think there are some questions that are scientific method driven where you have a a question about physics and then you structure a hypothesis and then you answer it. Mm -hmm. I think interestingly at this point in extragalactic astrophysics, the most exciting new insights are going to come from just observing, trying Mm to noticing new things and then you know, actually trying to understand what they're telling us about the universe. Right. So one of, yeah, one of the things we found recently is that, um, so one of our key kind of pieces of evidence for the existence of dark matter is that we have these, uh, these rotation cl- curves, which are flat. Okay. So meaning that they're spinning, uh, that they're spinning at a constant, that things far out are spinning at the same velocity as things interior, which means right. that there basically has to be a lot of extra mass that we can't see, uh, which is strange. Um, and But one of the things we found in some of our early James Webb data is that these uh, these rotation curves in at earlier cosmic times actually fall, which means that there isn't dark matter in that portion of the galaxy. So I guess the conclusion then is that dark matter at these early times seems to not be as extended out. The the halo is not as extended out. Is that right? Or we kind of think it might be the opposite. Like the, 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 like, good good to see I was paying attention. (laughs) We think that like the luminous matter had to, um, was much more effective at collapsing. And so it's like, it's very concentrated oh. and it's dominating over the dark matter. Oh, I see. So, so the dark matter, it, it, it is extended, but it's it's negligible. It's a negligible contribution to the gas that, in at, that sense. So in the, in the inner parts, in the of, the inner parts of the galaxies. Mm-hmm. So the, that tells you how much dark matter is around, I guess, or, or isn't or around. isn't, or yeah. lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. which is interesting. Yeah, so it, it suggests that like the 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 coupling that we see now between dark matter and normal matter is is very different at early cosmic times. Oh, well, that's very weird. Yeah, uh, and we had no idea that would be the case. There was some indication in observations a couple of years ago okay. um, that 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 we were seeing indications of that, and now we're seeing a lot more evidence for it with James Webb. Yeah. I see, but that's one example. Just as you're saying, one example as, ex- as you're saying, because uh, the original question is like, what's next? And the answer, like, it sounds like the answer is who knows, because it's really just look out there and try to find stuff. Yeah. Uh, which this, is exactly what you're saying you did. That's that's what led you to this uh, uh, 
this, this yeah. discovery of these massive galaxies. It's just, it's not like I'm going to try to find massive galaxies. It's, let's see what's there. Yeah. What are these things? <laughs> what are these bad boys? Yeah. Yeah. What are these chunky, chunky <laughs> individuals? <laughs> yeah. That's, <laughs> that's very cool. Uh, and so I guess right now, because, I mean, uh, the James Webb Telescope will be just take, taking more and more data, and there, there's, I guess it's just more to look at, and who knows what else there'll be. Mm -hmm. It's wild. It's wild and woolly out there. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I have no idea how to end this. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, that's amazing. Uh, it sounds it sounds like there's just so much more to come. So thank you so much to Dr. Nelson. I had a lot of fun talking science with you, and I hope you'll join us again sometime. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that was fun. I always have a great time talking with Professor Nelson, and I'm so glad she could sit down with me. And I'm also so glad we got to hear about some of the great results coming out of the Webb Telescope. I had no idea about those baby quasars. So thank you so much, Dr. Nelson, and thank you to our listeners. We will see you next time. The Astrophysics Podcast is supported in part by the National Science Foundation under grant number AAG 2206-299. All the music that you hear on the Astrophysics Podcast was written and recorded by Britton Ashford from her album Trotter. All songs are used with permission from the artist and producer. The music sounds even better with lyrics, so look her up if you enjoyed it. This podcast is produced in beautiful Lafayette, Indiana by me, Paul Duffel, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Purdue University. <laughs>